As discussed with Dr. Richardson, perhaps the most interesting and surprising result of this study was that in contrast to investigators and fellows, about a third of oncologists in practice do not consider fish or metaphase cytogenetics a routine part of the workup of a patient with myeloma. I met with Dr. Vassol to review many of the specific other findings of the study, but to begin, he commented on the issue of cytogenetics. Fish studies should be routine. Almost all commercial companies, laboratory companies, have fish panels. In the guidelines, there are certainly recommendation consensus panel of which studies should be done. I think that at a minimum, everyone would agree that they should do fish for translocations 414, 1416, and 17P deletions. Whether it's necessary to do the 1114 translocations is so-so, since that actually puts people in the standard group, not the high-risk group. Metaphase cytogenetics is helpful. I think the consensus panel indicated that this was primarily for chromosome 13 deletions. There is certainly data from the Arkansas group and from Europe regarding hyperdiploidy as well as hypodiploidy. That is listed in the MSMART categorization put out by the Mayo Clinic that they recommend that metaphase cytogenetics certainly be done, that they consider the high-risk group to be those who have metaphase chromosome 13 abnormalities and those who have hypodiploidy. One of the things I noticed that I thought was kind of interesting was that for the practicing oncologist, a substantial fraction don't include metaphase genetics, cytogenetics, and fish studies. More than about a third or more of them don't do that as opposed to the investigators and actually the fellows. Any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's very worrisome because actually when you consider the international staging system for a prognostic indicator, the FISH analysis is actually a much stronger predictor. That 20% of patients who have FISH abnormalities really have a much worse outcome than what you'd see just with stage 3 of the ISS. So this is really an area of important education that those studies should be done at least once in the patient's disease course. Now, whether they should be repeated again remains quite controversial, but they should be done with initial diagnosis, just like they do the regular bone marrow. I'm really surprised because in my personal practice, I'm seeing significantly more than 60% of the private oncologists doing metaphase cytogenetics. I would think so, too, but also I guess that maybe there's a little bias there in that those are the physicians who are referring you patients. I don't know if that makes a difference or not, or your geographic area. Perhaps, although I've lived in three different areas over the last five years, and I think that's slow. It stood out to me also, and you then see in the second part of this case that the patient had a beta-2 microglobulin of 4.8, an LDH of 260, and 15% plasma cell infiltration of the bone marrow. Cytogenetic and fish analyses are normal. Now, what stage would you give to this patient? What do you think about the numbers in the survey? So the ISS stage is based predominantly on the beta-2 microglobulin. Less than 3.5 is 1, 3.5 to 5.5, I should say to 5.4 is 2, and 5.5 or greater is 3. So this is a stage 2. And the private oncologists need more education. Depending on their age, they're still living in the age of dury salmon and not the ISS, and that's something that needs to be stressed. What's also distressing is the fact that the clinical investigators and the fellows didn't do very well on it either. I mean, none of these did particularly well with this. 
Yeah, it is kind of interesting. Particularly the fellows should get, but again, if the fellows are being trained by the clinical investigators and they don't know the answer, I guess it's hard for the fellows to know the answer. Right. In general, we saw that throughout this survey that the responses of the fellows tend to be a little bit closer to what the investigator said compared to the oncologist, which is... Mm, you know, I saw that, but like in some of the cases where they were talking about treatments, right? the fellows were more prone to give melphalan, prednisone, and thalidomide, where the clinical investigators weren't. And I don't know where they're coming up with that. Just to continue on with this case, you can see the patient was treated with PAD, got high-dose chemo and then autologous transplant, did well for two years, but now has progressive disease. Question, would you repeat cytogenetics in fish in first relapse? Well, this was actually a point of significant debate amongst the consensus panel. The other thing that was true was whether you ever needed to repeat a bone marrow. If you can follow protein studies, whether they're SPEP, UPEP, or free light chain assay, what additional information does the bone marrow provide you if you've got a measurable marker except in that 1% or less that have non-secretory myeloma. The consensus panel eventually, because you're dealing with academician-type individuals, came up with the final recommendation that the setting of progressive disease, their prognostic markers, their FISH studies particularly, may change as the disease evolves, and that you should know that. The next question gets into the age at which people no longer think about transplant. And it looks like the investigators, it's about 75. The docs in practice and fellows are around, a little bit younger, maybe around 70. What's the oldest patient you've actually transplanted? Myself? Mm-hmm. I've done two or three patients at 76. The oldest patient I know who's been transplanted was in Arkansas after I left, who was 82. What about the issue of the preferred approach to transplant for the patient who's eligible I collect sufficient cells for consideration of tandem transplant. Those over 65, unfortunately, unless they have a private carrier, Medicare will not cover two transplants. It serves minimal purpose to collect more cells than what is needed for one transplant. What about your preferred approach to transplant for a patient who experiences partial response to induction therapy? So the decision on whether you should do a single or tandem transplant is based on actually very small retrospective ad hoc evaluations that were done in the French myeloma group as well as there's an Italian study. And in these retrospective ad hoc analyses, they found that patients who did not achieve a very good partial remission in the French study or near complete remission in the Italian study are the patients that would benefit from a second transplant. Now, that's in the absence of some type of maintenance therapy, which in true terms is probably consolidative therapy, not maintenance therapy. I still adhere to the fact that if they have not achieved somewhere close to a very good partial remission, 90% tumor paraprotein reduction, I would be inclined to do a second transplant. If the patient hesitates about that, then I will put them on some type of quote-unquote maintenance therapy, which in real life is probably further consolidative therapy. There's actually one study from Abdel Kefi from Tunisia who did this same scenario I just pointed out to you not a particularly large study. I think it was about 180 patients. They randomized the patients to one transplant followed by six months of thalidomide and a second transplant at the time of relapse. And the other group had two transplants. And actually the group that had one transplant followed by six months of thalidomide did better. One way to interpret that is that this thalidomide maintenance slash consolidation was sufficient or comparable to doing a second transplant. But it's hard for any of us 
to understand how six months would have been sufficient because usually on immunomodulatory drugs, you have to continue that therapy or the disease acts up again. So it's a very confusing study that to this day, the myeloma transplant community still cannot interpret the results adequately. But those were the results they found. Let's skip over to what's the perception about the impact of lenalidomide on stem cell mobilization and then in terms of bortezomib. How would you answer that question? I would probably put moderate would be my answer to that. I am actually quite surprised that the private oncologists and the fellows are aware of this data. I'm really surprised. I don't know where they would get that information. I mean, I know this. There's actually a paper coming out two papers, essentially very similar, coming out from the International Myeloma Working Group discussing this specific issue. It's not even published yet. There's some very small retrospective case reports, essentially, that shows this. I personally have published one of these reports, 20-some patients. But this is interesting that somehow they know that lenalidomide does this, and it makes me question where they're getting information I wonder if they're getting it from our audio program, because I know we've discussed that a couple of times. What about bortezomib? Bortezomib, to the best of my knowledge and my own experience, does not negatively impact the ability to collect stem cells. I would have been in the 58%. Right. So let's talk a little bit about a couple other topics, and one is bisphosphonates. Can you kind of go through that case and then the questions that sort of followed it? Okay. So a 65-year-old achieves a partial response after transplant, gets maintenance thalidomide, and then he's treated with zoledronic acid for a year. Bone densitometry improves by 8%, but he still has mild osteopenia. So what do you do after one year? You know, there are three different sets of guidelines for the use of bisphosphonates. There's one from ASCO, there's one from Mayo Clinic, and there's one from the International Myeloma Working Group. And they're all relatively similar, but not exact. The best information to answer this question was a study performed by the French Myeloma Group, which I don't know if you want me to go into sure. the details with yeah. that. So the French Myeloma Group did a three-arm study, and there were two parts to the study. One was the impact of thalidomide on progression-free survival and overall survival. That was one of the arms of the study. The other part of the study was the impact of bisphosphonates over a long period of time. So there were three groups. There was a group that got pomidronate, or in this country is marketed under iridia. One group received iridia and thalidomide, and the third group was just observed, if I remember the setup correctly. And what they found was the group that had thalidomide for maintenance regarding post-transplant, this is after tandem transplant, I believe, the group that got thalidomide had an improved progression-free survival and an overall survival. That being said, there was a subgroup analysis that showed only those patients who had not achieved a very good partial remission and had a low beta-2 microglobin were the only ones that actually benefited from the thalidomide maintenance therapy, which is why I mentioned earlier that I actually think that the thalidomide is consolidative therapy because the patients who had the best response were those who weren't in complete remission or very good partial remission. The other aspect was what happened with the group who had one year of pomidronate versus those who didn't have anything. And they actually found no difference in skeletal-related events. So in their hands, which led to some of the guidelines, which I'm going to allude to in a second, they showed that one year of a bisphosphonate in patients who have undergone transplant and are in remission 
does not benefit beyond that period of time. So that being said, the guidelines from the International Myeloma Working Group are for one year of bisphosphonate monthly after transplant if the patient's achieved remission. The guidelines for patients who have not had a transplant and have stable disease for two years but no evidence of active disease, I should change that, that have no active disease, then the guidelines recommend two years of bisphosphonate therapy. So only patients that have persistently active bone disease, not just mild osteopenia, should receive the bisphosphonates beyond that one-year period, in my mind. Although, if you look at the responses of the survey, it looks like actually relatively few people stop after one year. Correct. A lot do after two years. This changing to every three months is not based on any study whatsoever. Three or six months, there's no data at all. Zero. And then if you look and you see with two years, you see a lot more people stopping at that point. Right. The recommendations, I think, from both ASCO and the International Myeloma Group are two years if there's no active disease. So I think that that's fine. Most of my patients have transplants. I stop after one year. There currently is a study being undertaken from the pharmaceutical company to compare one month versus three months for patients who've had at least one year of prior therapy. And they're basing that on urine and telopeptide levels, how they randomize the patient either monthly or every three months after a year of therapy. What about the next case, a 65-year-old patient who presents with high-risk myeloma with multiple lytic lesions and osteopenia? Partial response. Can you kind of go through the rest of the case? So it's similar to the last one, except he has lytic lesions with the previous case, just mild osteopenia. This person actually has lytic lesions. The other patient actually, in retrospect, I don't treat people with osteopenia. If they had no bone disease, I wouldn't have given them any bisphosphonate. Some of my colleagues, one of them who you're interviewing, doesn't agree with that approach. But you'll find that out when you discuss that with him. So this patient has multiple leg lesions, gets partial remission, gets maintenance therapy, and then gets a year of zoledronic acid. I probably, in the absence of active bone disease, I would agree with that. So then what would you do at one year? To one year, I would stop at one year. Although, again, we see the majority of people would continue. I know. They're not following actually, the myeloma working group guidelines. How about if they'd had two years of therapy? Again, in the absence of active disease, I would absolutely stop. And meanwhile, the clinical investigators are giving it every three months based on no information, and only a third of them are stopping. 20% are continuing. Seems like you find that surprising. I do, but the problem is this was ingrained into us years ago. So the first publication on bisphosphonates came out in 1996, in New England Journal of Medicine by Jim Berenson, which was nine months follow-up in patients, not transplant, but non-transplant patients that were randomized to conventional chemotherapy with without bisphosphonate. And then they did a follow-up report of the same group of patients in 1998 in JCO. And in that report, the patients who continued on therapy at the final time point of analysis at 21 months continued to have an improvement in skeletal-related events, less fractures, less pain at 21 months. So with that, because it continued from 9 months to 21 months, the myeloma community said, well, patients should stay on this stuff forever because they continue to benefit for a long period of time. It wasn't until we got this newer data from the French group and the fact that there's an increased risk of osteonecrosis of the jaw with prolonged treatment that people started saying, well, maybe we should reassess these guidelines. But that being said, the only 
data we have is this French study. There's no other study besides that to guide medicine or evidence-based medicine decisions on how long to treat. And this particular study may not have filtered down, which looks pretty apparent to me. But that's what led to the guidelines, particularly by the International Myeloma Working Group. We thought this was a significant study, the French study, and the outcome. And with that in mind, we recommend the one year after transplant or two years for people who do not have active disease. Let's go on to the next case, case six, a 67-year-old patient who's a smoker, high-risk myeloma, is going to get VTD, but three years ago he had a deep vein thrombosis without known precipitating factors for which he received a year of full-dose warfarin. How would you approach the issue of thrombosis prevention in a patient like that, and what do you think about the responses here in the survey? So I would fully anticoagulate this person because he had a previous history of a DVT. And there are guidelines that have been published on recommendations of how to manage these type of patients, and they divide into the low-risk and high-risk groups, published also by the International Myeloma Working Group. You may get a lot of this because the other two people are both in the same working group. But published by the International Myeloma Working Group with Antonio Palumbo as the first author, published, I believe, in 2008 in Leukemia, where we actually delineate the high-risk and low-risk. There's a nice table in there. This patient would be high-risk because he had a previous DVT for whatever reason, and now we're giving him a thalidomide dexamethasone-based regimen. I definitely would fully anticoagulate him with an INR target between 2 and 3, and actually 60% of the clinical investigators would agree with that. Not as many of the oncologists or fellows? No, they wouldn't. I think they're going to learn from experience, though. Well, I think one of the problems is... I don't know how many patients with myeloma they actually see. I think they see some, but certainly not a huge volume of patients as they see with breast cancer or colon cancer. Correct. I was actually surprised by the numbers because they put down the very beginning of the survey. Yeah, I was too. patients they see. Because my impression from working with Jim Epstein and doing these NOCR presentations is that the number of new myeloma patients that are generally seen is somewhere in the 6 to 10 range in a year. I actually thought it might even be lower, because when I've asked people just sort of informally, it certainly hasn't been more than 10 a year, maybe less. So that surprised me, too. I can't explain it. We had a case in there on amyloidosis I wanted to get your thoughts about. Okay. 60-year-old congestive heart failure, positive for amyloid on abdominal fat aspirate by Congo Red. It has an abnormal capital lambda ratio mild Benz-Jones proteinuria, creatinine, not particularly high, but certainly not normal, about nephrotic range proteinuria. So this patient has kind of the typical presentations of amyloid. The patient should have, because we didn't do the workup for amyloid, this patient should have troponins and brain natriuretic peptide done because there are grading systems of prognostic indicators using those two parameters, predominantly published by the Mayo Clinic group by Angela Dispensary. They did have them done here, so the BNP and troponin were normal, which is not very likely in somebody with congestive heart failure if it's from amyloid. So the treatment choices here have evolved over a period of time. Up until fairly recently, melphalan was as good as anything else. In the absence of some of the very newest data, melphalan is probably the gold standard at this point in time for the treatment of these folks. There's recent data... There have been published small studies, Boston Group, Mayo Group, using bortezomib or revlimid lenalidomide-based regimens. And it appears that the bortezomib-based regimens are a little more 
effective in treating these patients. The whole idea of treating amyloid should be a hematologic remission, a complete remission. And this is also controversial that if you achieve a hematologic complete remission, do you really need to proceed to hydrotherapy and autologous stem cell transplant? The whole idea with amyloid is to stop the production of the light change and subsequent organ infiltration by the light chains. Once you do that, if you get a hematologic remission, I'm not sure you need to proceed to a hydrotherapy. Another area of controversy, much smaller patient group, fewer studies being done on that. I personally would treat this person with a Velcade-based regimen, either Velcade. If a patient 60 years old, I would think about a transplant. So I would think about a bortezomib dexamethasone-based regimen. And I would do chemotherapy. I would not go to immediate transplant. There was a paper published by the Boston Group a few years back. They gave melphalan dexamethasone for two cycles. They randomized patients, or they took them right to transplant, and there was no benefit of giving two cycles of therapy. Can you talk about the next case, a 70-year-old patient with Waldenstrom's? Maybe go through what the case is and how you would have managed it. So 70-year-old who's got neuropathy from his Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia and the headaches, which are actually quite worrisome, although the serum viscosity is only 4 now, you certainly get concerned whether this person has hyperviscosity syndrome if he has true headaches that are related to his IgM gammopathy. So the IgM level is relatively high, 7,300, even though the serum viscosity seems to be a little bit disproportionately low. I would think it would be higher than that. Bone marrow shows the typical lymphoplasmocytoid cells with the appropriate flow cytometric markers. So this patient has Waldstrom's, and this is kind of a mixed bag as well of what to treat patients with Waldenstrom's. There's certainly data from Steve Trion at Dana-Farber showing the efficacy of rituximab, rituximab plus bortezomib, and dexamethasone, which is one of the choices here. There's data for CVP. There's data for CHOP. There's data for RCHOP. There is actually quite a few regimens available to treat this patient. If you look at the Waldenstrom's working group, they essentially list a whole series of options available to treat these patients, including chlorambucil, which has activity. Given this person may have some hyperviscosity, I don't think that that's what I would do. So given that clinical scenario, I probably would treat this patient with our CHOP and possibly change after a few cycles when his hyperviscosity symptoms would resolve. And that actually is the most common answer that the investigators gave although the docs in practice and fellows are more oriented towards steroids and plasmapheresis. Depending on if he had retinal hemorrhages or not, I may consider plasma exchanging this individual. That one, I can't really tell exactly from this case if I would need to do that or not. How about the next patient, a 68-year-old patient with a plasma cytoma? So this person apparently has a solitary plasma cytoma. Now, they did a PET CT to look for other sites of disease, now, unfortunately, not all myelomas or plasmacytomas are PET-AVID, and I probably would have actually done MRIs of this entire patient as well as the PET-CT, given the fact that some of these plasmacytomas are not PET-AVID. He did have an MRI. Because I'd really like to know if this was a solitary lesion or not. Looks like he did have an so MRI. So assuming that this is truly a solitary lesion, I probably would just treat with radiation therapy. And that certainly is the most common answer that other people gave. Any other comments about treatment of plasma cytoma? Not really, except that I would not give this patient bisphosphonates. This is not 
catalytic bone disease process, and I think that giving them bisphosphonates would be an incorrect thing to do. Now, whether you want to give some steroids, if you think there's enough swelling, depends on what you thought the swelling was from. If it's truly just mechanical and not from swelling of the optic nerve or anything like that, isn't appear to be affected from any type of edema, I probably would just give this person radiation therapy. Now, a follow-up question we had was if the patient was 55 instead of 68, would you consider transplant? Most people said no, but some said yes. Well, I'm a transplanter and I would say no. How about the next case, a 68-year-old patient with a plasma cytoma, this time in the vertebral body? So this is a little bit different because the other one may or may not be an extramedullary plasma cytoma, and this one is obviously a plasma cytoma bone. It has a significantly different long-term outcome depending on whether they're extramedullary or solitary plasma cytomas of bone. One has a high cure rate, the other one has a very low cure rate. But this person apparently just has... Again, uh, I'm not sure that the workup was adequate here. I wouldn't include bone and skeletal x-rays as a sufficient workup for a solitary plasma cytoma. I probably would do an MRI of the entire head, spine, and pelvis, and I'd probably do a PET scan as well, which many, and I'm not sure what my colleagues will say if you discuss this with them, but I would do that with these patients. The reason for the MRI is to look for other sites of disease to see if this is truly a systemic disease or localized. The reason for the PET scan is that it's difficult to follow these patients with MRIs as the main test, as we talked about earlier. It may take years for MRIs to change and normalize in the setting of a complete response. So you may still have a mass on an MRI that you cannot tell if it's active plasma cytoma or if it's dying. And the PET scan, assuming it's the plasma cytoma is PET avid, would give you that piece of information. So I would do MRIs the entire head, spine, pelvis. I would do a PET scan, and then I would radiate this patient. The last thing I wanted to ask you about is the issue of pre-transplant induction regimen. And we have scenarios here, age 55, age 70, age 75, and age 55 with adverse cytogenetic profile. Can you talk about how you would approach these patients and what you think about these answers here? This is an evolving field, and let's assume this is not a transplant candidate, which we'll get to with at least the older age. Should the goal of therapy be disease control, or should we keep hitting the patients with effective drugs that have higher toxicity profiles to try to achieve a complete remission and ultimately strive for an operational cure. And that's the controversy, at least in the non-transplant patients, is should you just control the disease or should you really go at it, given the fact that really going at the disease with high doses of drugs or very toxic drugs has a negative impact on quality of life. So with that in mind, let me go and answer your question. So in the younger patients with standard risk myeloma, my referral pattern is that the patients are coming from a long distance to come and see me. So I prefer not to give intravenous-based therapies. It's just not convenient for the patient. We've never done a head-to-head of a bortezomib-based induction therapy versus a lenalumide-based induction therapy. That study is being done, but we don't have the data. So in somebody young who I'm going to transplant, I'm going to prefer to give them Revlimid and low-dose dexamethasone 
That being said, I'm going to be speaking out of both sides of my mouth on this statement. The data from the ECOG trial that was presented by Vincent Rajkumar at repeated national conferences, and I'm a co-PI in that study, shows that low-dose dexamethasone is superior at one-year and two-year survival compared to high-dose dexamethasone. That's really quite interesting because the response rates are higher in the high-dose dexamethasone. So the reason for the improved overall survival at one year and two years is the fact that the high-dose dexamethasone is associated with an increased mortality rate. It was 5% versus 0.5% in the high-dose versus the low-dose dexamethasone arms. That mortality rate was essentially only seen in patients over the age of 65. But since that data became available, everyone has switched, including myself, to low-dose dexamethasone, even though the higher dose gives a higher response rate and has the same mortality rate as the low dose in the patients under the age of 65. So we may be under-treating the younger patients by not giving higher doses of dexamethasone. Does it matter in that group of patients if they're going to go from revlimid dexamethasone to transplant? I don't have the answer for that. There's some preliminary data with other regimens from Europe. There's a Spanish study, a French study, and an Italian study all indicate that you get deeper responses before transplant. Those continue to follow after transplant when you use novel agents versus older agents. So it may make a difference the depth of the response pre-transplant for those who are going on to transplant. That all being said, I prefer the Revlimid low-dose dexamethasone because it's easiest to tolerate and has response rates of 70%. Now, I also participated, because you're speaking to the principal investigator, Paul Richardson from Dana-Farber, in a study up front of Velcade Revlimid dexamethasone. The response rate with that particular regimen was unbelievably high. It's 100% including approximately 75% who are achieving a very good partial remission. That's one of the highest rates of response we've ever seen. That's better than you could get with a transplant in the old days with regular induction therapy. So this is unbelievably potent regimen. But again, if my patient is going to transplant and if I want to be most convenient to them as well as be concerned about quality of life issues, I would go with a dexamethasone regimen for the age 55 group. And I actually would treat the age 70 group exactly the same. I wouldn't change my treatment for age at 70 or 55. What about the 55-year-old with the adverse cytogenetics? So the patients with the adverse, this is also part of the consensus panel, which you'll hear from the others. The data right now implies that Velcade can overcome adverse prognostic factors based upon some of the FISH abnormalities, particularly the 414 group, which is about 15% of the patients have translocation of 414. Now, this data is based on some earlier data in the relapse setting with Velcade and more recently with the upfront setting of the VISTA trial with MPV, showing that the groups with and without 414 abnormalities had essentially the same response rate and the same progression-free survival and overall survival. There is some data with Revlimid that in the relapse setting appears to be effective but this is retrospective and is probably biased because you had to survive that long to get on the study and to participate. There's an upfront, very small study from Mayo Clinic of only 16 patients treated with Revlimid dexamethasone upfront that showed an inferior outcome compared to those who did not have poor prognostic features treated with Revlimid. 
So the consensus group said that there is a suggestion that Velcade-based regimens may be more potent and effective in the adverse prognostic group compared to other treatment regimens. So I personally have treated all my adverse prognostic group patients with a Velcade-based regimen. I actually would probably treat them with Velcade Revlimidexamethasone. The last thing I want to ask you is just to go back to what we were talking about earlier, which is, and this is the first time we've attempted this in myeloma. What we found when we did this, you know, repeatedly, we've probably done 10 of these in breast cancer at least, is it kind of takes a while to sort of get into how to do it and how to ask it and execute it. So I'm sure we're going to learn from this experience, but I'm just kind of curious candidly what you think about this not just in terms of whether the ASH meeting would be interested in it, but whether anybody would be interested in it, and should anybody be interested in any of this stuff? The overall question of practice patterns regarding standard treatments, of I think there's some interest. I'm not sure that the clinicians are going to care what their partner down the hallway is treating with Revlimid low-dose dex or high-dose dex, or if they're giving Velcade or thalidomide. I think the ones that probably get the most out of this is pharmaceutical companies. That being said, that is an impetus to increase their educational programs. Well, I guess I wonder, is there anything here that actually has patient implications? For example, we identified a couple of things in the workup that didn't seem to be getting done. It seems like somebody ought to be interested in that in terms of quality of care. Again, I think that there's certainly a gap there. I will not dispute the fact I think there's a gap about the proper workup. And I think there's a major gap that we didn't cover where they talk about the top three preferred systemic regimens. Right. And, you know, 30% of even the clinical investigators are still putting down melphalan-prednisone. There's been study after study now that melphalan-prednisone is inferior to MPT, MPV, Velcade dex, thalidomide dex, and yet 30% even of the clinical investigators are still thinking that that, of the fellows, it's 34%. This, to me, is a major gap in educational efforts. You know, the workup, I think, is important. These routine, particularly for the non-transplant candidates, you know, melphalan-prednisone, if you look at the thalidomide dex, 30% of the private oncologists and fellows are preferring thalidomide dex. I haven't treated anyone with thalidomide dex in three, four years. Do you think that these kinds of differences really make a difference in terms of patient outcome, or is it all centered around the same thing? We need just to get better research. That's a great observation. What happens over the lifetime is they get a series of these drugs that are available. And the question is, is not which drug, it's which sequence that you want to start with. And that's where we don't have the answer either. So if they get a Velcade-based regimen, they're going to get Revlimid when that doesn't work anymore. If they get Revlimid, they're going to get Velcade, or they're going to get the combination of the two, because there's some data that even people who failed both, you can get some benefit from combining them. So often in oncology, we're dealing with minimal benefits, realistically, when you really look at the global needs that the patient has. But, I mean, if you're in a situation where by selecting one regimen, you might improve the quality of life relieve symptoms better, maybe have the patient live a little bit longer? Is that important enough that we really ought to be looking at it? You know, I don't really know. So one of the major faults we have in the myeloma field, which I don't know if it's true for all fields, which you have a lot of experience in, is that we don't do adequate quality of life assessments. So we don't add that to many of our regimens when we're doing phase three trials, is there's not a quality of life tool in most of them. 
because I think that's actually an important thing. Yeah, although sometimes, you know, you read papers that have quality of life things in there, and they've got these indices and numbers, and you can't really get a feel for it as a clinician. But I think clinicians, experienced clinicians, have, you know, maybe some thoughts about overall global quality of life or investigators. I mean, you participated in the VTD study, so I could say to you, well, you know, globally, how did those patients do to compare to somebody who, say, gets RD? Probably your answer to that would be more useful to me than in quality of life index. What is your answer, incidentally? Interesting, the VTD, where you're giving two potentially neurotoxic drugs, for the most part, they seem to cancel each other out. So they actually tolerate it very well, but they do not tolerate it as well as they get with the RD. With what being the major difference or problem? Well, the VTD still is more because you still have neuropathy, even though it's not additive because you don't get an additive velcate and thalidomide neuropathy in VTD, but they still get some neuropathy, which you don't get with the RD because our revlimid doesn't cause sure. neuropathy.